Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. All right, well, this is episode 102 of Reclaiming the Faith, and in this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Eric Hankins about his article, Romans 9 and the Calvinistic Doctrine of Reprobation. Now, I cited this article in episode 97 of Reclaiming the Faith called Jacob, Esau, and Election, and a friend of mine who is a four-point Calvinist wrote me back some responses to this article. And I decided to seek out Dr. Eric Hankins and see if he would respond to these questions, which he graciously did. So this is going to be a really, really amazing interview. If you have any questions about this interview, I want to encourage you, and Dr. Eric Hankins encourages you as well, to email him at ehankins at fbcfairhope.org. That's E-H-A-N-K-I-N-S at fbcfairhope.org. F-A-I-R-H-O-P-E dot org. And Dr. Hankins has that email because he is the pastor of First Baptist Fairhope in Fairhope, Alabama. So please go check that out. Also, if this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And if you want to support this ministry, please consider going to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Baker, where for $5 or more a month, you'll get access to two videos, one being a video about the early, an early Christian or an early Christian document, and the other being a, uh, a, an acoustic version of one of my original songs. And I, I'm going to start doing uh, tutorial videos on those as well on Patreon, as this latest one is a tutorial video on how to play my song, Be Still My Soul. So if you have wanted to learn how I play those songs, check it out. All right. Well, I'm also blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt, who do an amazing job putting out content uh, every week. So please go check out our Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live YouTube channels. That will be a blessing to you. Finally, the early Christian quotes I use can generally be found from the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. Well, without any further ado, let's get to my interview with Dr. Eric Hankins. All right, Dr. Eric Hankins, thank you for being on the program today. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Well, uh, you know, you're the uh, you're the head pastor of First Baptist Hope, uh, Fair Hope, First Baptist Fair Hope in Alabama, and you wrote an awesome article in the Journal of Baptist Theology and Ministry uh, entitled Romans Nine and the Calvinistic Doctrine of Reprobation, and uh, I cited that in a previous podcast I did on uh, Romans nine thirteen about Jacob and Esau. And uh, so the reason that we're doing this interview today is uh, a really good friend of mine uh, who's a a four-point believer in TULIP, I guess. He rejects limited atonement. Uh, He he had some some thoughts about that and some questions on that. I thought, you know, I could could answer that, but I think it'd be better if I could find the author to respond to that. And I just thank you so much for your graciousness and taking the time to respond to his 
is questions. And so before we get into those particular questions, would you mind telling folks a little bit about yourself and how you came to know Jesus? Yeah, um, I was uh, very blessed to, to uh, have a uh, Christ-centered home. Uh, my father uh, is a, a minister, a pastor all the years I was growing up. And then he, um, uh, after I went off to college, uh, God moved him into denominational ministry. And so actually he finished his career um, a couple of years ago, uh, retiring from the Louisiana Baptist Convention where he was the executive director. So he and my mom just loved, loved the Lord, loved church, ministry. And so I grew up hearing the gospel. And so my father led me to Christ mm. uh, when I was nine years old. Wow. And, um, you know, just lived in a discipling environment all through those growing up years. And um, junior in high school, you know, that time period of really starting to ask questions. Lord, what's, what's, what's your will for me for what's next? Mm. Um, and felt God's call uh, in this um uh, the summer before my senior year of high school. So I answered that call to ministry and just started the started that process of serving churches and getting my education and that sort of thing in Louisiana and then in Mississippi and then in Texas to do some doctoral work uh, and then back to Mississippi. Uh, and then four years ago, God called me to uh, pastor a First Baptist Church in Fairhope. Nice. That's awesome. Well, uh just diving into the into the article in, in Romans nine, you know, many many Calvinists see Romans nine as the ultimate example of the doctrine of unconditional election, and many would go then to like either single or double predestination, you know, depending on how they see the text. But but obviously, you know, you don't hold that opinion, neither do I. What do you believe was Paul's uh, purpose for writing the letter of Romans, and in particular, what point or points? Do you think that he was trying to convey in chapters nine through eleven? Yeah, great question, and I think it's fundamental to the to the divide between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. It's, it's just that question, or yeah. is dealt with in that question. Um, a Calvinist would view the Book of Romans as basically Paul's systematic theology book, in which he writes uh, every everything that he would want uh, anyone to know about how someone gets saved. And of course, Romans is an incredible letter that, that gives us a great deal of soteriological understanding. Yeah. But Paul doesn't write, when he writes letters, he's writing letters to address specific problems. That's a critical feature of New Testament exegesis is you have to find the occasion of Paul's letter. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to bring all of his theological resources to bear to answer a very specific question. Yeah. You have to keep that in mind. So you have to let Paul's question sit at the center of how we understand what Paul's trying to communicate. If we don't do that, then we then we lose Paul's argument. And then that is tempting to start reading other people's arguments into Paul's letter, putting words in Paul's mouth, having Paul making arguments that he doesn't make uh, that suits somebody else's theological um, objective. And so the thing to keep in mind, it seems very clear to me about about. Paul's letter is the, the driving issue for Paul is the issue of Jewish unbelief. Mm -hmm. That what he wants to do is he wants to have Rome be his Antioch in the West. He's done in the Eastern part of the empire and he wants to share the gospel in the Western part of the empire. And he wants Rome to be the place he leaves on his missionary journeys from, just like Antioch was where he left 
uh, yeah. when he went on his three missionary journeys. But he's never been to Rome, and so he's gonna he is gonna lay out his gospel that he preaches. But uh, central to Paul's missiology is that it's to the Jew first. The mm-hmm. Book of Acts says when Paul goes into a new village, where does he go first? Where does he go first? Yeah, the synagogues every time. Because the synagogue preaches the gospel to the Jews. And what happens when he preaches the gospel to the Jews? Yeah, some are receptive, but few, few. And then a lot of persecution and resistance. Stuff starts getting thrown. Yeah. You know, rocks are thrown. The police are called. You got trouble. Yeah. And then all from there goes on. And and that always propels him to where the Gentiles are. And then, and it's mainly, he he says, you guys don't want to listen to this. I'll go on and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. A church is planted. And then Paul goes to the next place. But when he goes to the next city, where does he go? Still the synagogue. Goes to the synagogue. Now you would think at some point on a rational level, stop going to the synagogue, right? right? Paul, why can't you ever figure out, just skip the synagogue. Yeah. It's the same thing every time, you know? But Paul's theology, his his understanding of salvation history, is that that even that Jewish rejection mm. plays a central role in how the gospel gets to where it's supposed to get. Mm. That, by the way, is Paul's story. Paul first hears about the gospel in Jerusalem. He rejects it. He persecutes Christians. Yeah. He kills Stephen. His idea is, I'm going to snuff this thing out. But what happens? Uh, after he uh, uh, leads the martyrdom of Stephen. Right. There goes the church. Yeah. There it goes, and it goes out to the Gentiles. Yeah. And so Paul's on his way to Damascus to, to <laughs> because it's gotten out of hand. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where he's, he's saved. So you also have to remember that the story that Paul is going to tell about Jewish unbelief is Paul's story of Jewish unbelief. And then at the right time, all of a sudden, this miracle happens. Uh, and, um, he saved, and because Paul is saved, then the Gentiles come in. Yeah. So, got to keep all those things in mind. So, but in Rome, and real quickly, uh, uh, just a few years before Paul had written the letter to the Romans, Claudius had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, and he yep. kicked the Jews out of Rome because they were fighting with Christians. Yeah. Claudius doesn't care. He doesn't know what Jews believe. He doesn't know what Christians. He doesn't see the difference. So he just kicks them all out. Yeah. And. While the Jews are are out, by the way, that's when Paul meets um, Priscilla and uh, Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, because yeah. they've been they've been ejected from Rome. Yeah. So uh, so the but the Roman Church has been born. Mm. There are Gentile believers in the Roman Church. They're still doing the work of ministry. They're probably experiencing what Paul experiences, which mostly Gentiles are getting saved. Yeah. And they get used to not having Jews around. Hmm. With laws and the, you know, and they get up, and you know, did, where was this meat eaten, and you know, all that kind of stuff, and they're seeing a, an influx of a response to the gospel from Gentiles, and and no trouble with the Jews. Then the Jews start to return, and the trouble starts again. Right. And uh, what I believe is that what Paul is contending with is that the mostly Gentile Roman church has decided that God has given up on Jewish people. Yeah. They had their chance. They don't respond. And perhaps it's best to leave them alone. Let's mm-hmm. just focus on Gentiles. And so what Paul says is, I want to come to Rome and I want to preach the gospel from Rome. But when I share the gospel, I preach the gospel to Jews. And when the response is, well, they never accept the gospel, it does not matter. Uh, that is, that's a part of salvation history. And it's a part of this 
long plan of God's to eventually uh, uh, use Jewish unbelief to send the gospel out to the Gentiles. And then at the right time, that coming in of the Gentiles will prompt Jews yeah. uh, to, to come in. Okay? Make them jealous. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So to, to sum up, so I don't, don't chase too many rabbits, the that's problem great. that Paul is addressing in Romans is the problem of Jewish unbelief. That's why you find this dynamic from the very beginning that you don't really see in any of, the, of his other letters. In the introduction, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it's and it's the it's God saving both of those people from both of those groups. That's the display of His righteousness. It's the display of Him keeping His promise. Yeah. What's the promise to who? Promise to Abraham. Abraham, through you, what? All nations. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Yeah. So uh, uh, Paul is saying, I preach the gospel to, to Jews as well as Gentiles, and I'm going to continue to do that when I come to Rome. Yeah, Matt. Thank you for that that thorough answer. I mean, it's really important setting up the context of everything. I really appreciate that. Um, well, well some, some Calvinists will reject or, or uh, people from Reformed you know, theology, if they're not going to call themselves Calvinists, will reject the idea of free will due to their definition of the sovereignty of God. Like if God is really sovereign, then man doesn't really have free will. And of course, you know, then there's some compatibilists that are saying man has free will, but if you really press them, God has determined their desires. So they're when they're acting, they're acting according to their desires, even though God right. said that that's how they're going to act. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you explain God's sovereignty in relation to the will of mankind and spiritual beings? Yeah. Um, you start with what the Bible clearly affirms. God is sovereign. Yeah. Uh, he knows everything. Uh he will have what he wants. He's not guessing about how the world will turn out. Uh, the world is going to turn out exactly the way that he wants it to turn out. It doesn't. God doesn't merely know the future, but he, um, the future is under his control, mm. uh, and the future is not. Um, the, the future is not unknown to him, and it's the future that he wants. Okay, that's that's clear in the Bible. Um, but freedom is the, is the capacity to choose between two options. That's what it means to be free. That is the basis for moral responsibility. If I cannot choose between two options, then I can't be held accountable for the choices that I make. Mm-hmm. And that's just what, so, so that's the philosophical issue. And Calvinists will turn themselves into pretzels getting around that, that just defining freedom in completely different sorts of ways. Um, now, when it comes to the relationship between my freedom, the fact that I'm the cause of my own choices and God's sovereignty, that he is sovereign, sovereignly directing the universe. He's just decided in his creational freedom that one of the things he's going to create is free is, is humans with freedom. Yeah. Um, the, as a, as a theologian, the, the, my philosophical understanding of how God brings that about is, a, is an approach called Molinism. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be William Lane Craig, Ken Keithley, and we could do a whole podcast on <laughs> Molinism. I'll try, I'll try to sum it up. But, sure. but oversimplifying, God knows all contingencies. 
He, he knows what the universe would look like if you and I chose not to do this podcast. And he can, and he knows what the universe would look like if we had made different choices. He knows all of those contingencies across time. That's a, that's a lot of knowledge, but God's able to know all of those things. Sure. And then what God does is he chooses to bring into being the set of contingencies with, with maximum freedom and maximum salvation. And so the, the way things look in the book of Revelation, when the, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the, the multitudes are there. Um, the, reason, uh, the reason God knows that that is how the end is going to be is because that's the ending God wants. But it's, but it's an ending that is, cre- it is created with our free will playing a role. Yeah. Um, it's the, uh, he's decided to let our free will count. And the world that uh, concludes in the new creation is a world with maximum freedom and maximum redemption. There might have been a set of contingencies in which no one uh, came to know Christ. Uh, God doesn't choose to bring that world into existence because that doesn't bring him glory. So anyway, uh, out of all possible contingencies created by our different choices, God chooses the world that that uh, takes seriously our freedom uh, and is maximally redemptive. That's, yeah. uh, that's how I put freedom and, and sovereignty together. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Like, um, if I can ask like a, a clarifying question or a statement, give a clarifying statement. I think it's in First Samuel twenty three, where David is um, in uh, Keila. Is that right? And the men are there, and um, Saul's pursuing David, and David puts on the ephod, and he's like, "Are are the men of Keila going to deliver me?" And God's, "Yep." And then he asks another clarifying question: Are they going to do it? Yep. And then he leaves. And so it's, it's almost like God knows, and, and like maybe you can help me flesh this out, um, but it's like God knows what they would do in that circumstance. And since David leaves, then that kind of changes, you know, the That's micro right. plan, I guess, but God's still going to, going to bring about his macro plan. David's not going to be captured. He's going to become king eventually. All that stuff's going to play out what God ultimately wants. I don't know. Can you help me with that a little bit? That's a, and you use the word would. God knows what, yeah. what those men would do. And that's a, that's an important word in my, in, in my, um, uh, in what I espouse, which is Molinism. Yeah. God knows what we can do. Yeah. God knows what we would do. And God knows what we will do. Yeah. And, and and it's important to know all those things. And he uses his knowledge about what we would do yeah. to um, ultimately be a part of what we will do. Yeah. What he what he what he actualizes, and that's the, that's again that's a Molinism philosophical sure. world. Yeah. What he ultimately the plan that he chooses to actualize. Yeah. But the plan he chooses to actualize includes our free choosing. There are some things that certain people uh, will never do, no matter what circumstances God puts them in. Yeah. That's just, that's just the, that's, that's what they want to do. Yeah. And so it, you can put them in the middle of the greatest Billy Graham crusade ever. Yeah. They are not going to say yes to Jesus because they don't want to do that. Right. And, and God is um, not going to contravene their freedom uh, in order 
uh, to say they've gotten the check mark and, and, and they, they are among the redeemed. Yeah. So um, now does God have to honor our freedom? Absolutely not. And many times he doesn't honor our freedom. I'm, God is never duty bound to go, well, anyway. and he, he intervenes in powerful ways right. uh, all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not making an argument for absolute freedom. Yeah. But, um, but our freedom is playing a role that never, uh, uh, but that ultimately never circumvents what God wants to accomplish. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to do that. Um, well, if you don't mind, since, since my buddy's uh, first question regards a statement you make in the first paragraph of your article, uh, I'd like to read from the beginning of the first paragraph uh, okay. through the statement the listener addresses, just to give some context for, for those right. who are listening. So you write, and, and I, I really appreciate that you go you know, straight to like Wayne Grudem you know, with his systematic theology, because you're, you're not coming after a straw man. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're going after the dude, the, the man. Uh, so you, you write, Calvinistic theologian Wayne Grudem defines reprobation as the sovereign decision of God before the creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. That's the end of the quote. And then you continue, the doctrine of reprobation, which is essential to Calvinism as necessary corollary to the doctrine of unconditional election, asserts that there is a certain group of persons who have never been and will never be the object of God's redeeming love, regardless of whether or not they hear the gospel. God is determined not to give this certain group of individuals the grace and faith necessary for salvation. He does not base this determination to withhold grace and faith on anything having to do with the reprobate persons themselves. He withholds the grace and faith from them simply because it brings him the most glory. The jolting but unavoiding, unavoidable reality is that Calvinism teaches that the one and only reason that the lost are not saved is that, quote, God does not want them to be saved, unquote. So my buddy responds to that. He says, to me, this seems a bit misleading as both those who find themselves the recipient of mercy and those who do not are in their current predicament because of sin. And he quotes Calvin's Institutes of uh, the Christian Religion, um, volume two, and he says, uh, he's quoting Calvin, uh, well, he's, he's paraphrasing Calvin. He says that Calvin intimates that by the sacrifice of Christ, we obtain free justification and become pleasing to God, though we are by nature the children of wrath and by sin estranged from him. He's, of course, Calvin's going back to Augustine, who's kind of pulling from maybe some uh, Stoic uh, <laughs> background or some Manichaean background there. So how would you respond to that? You know, I, uh, this is a, a question I often like to ask. Is there anyone who is in hell right now? Uh, to ask of the Calvinist. Yeah. Is there anyone who is in hell who could have been in heaven? Mm. And the, the Calvinist answer has to be no. Right. Right? Yeah. Because um, it isn't their sin that separates the reprobate from from the saved or from the elect. Yeah. It is God's choice without reference 
to any decision they make. Yeah. They never had a chance. Uh, and so it's, it isn't misleading. Uh, what Calvinists do, unfortunately, is they're the ones who are always misleading by saying, well, it's because of your sin. Well, do I, um, where does my desire to sin come from? Since right. their real freedom is that I act on my greatest desire. Where does my desire to sin come from? Well, that, that's, that's imputed to you by Adam. So what happened was, is that, is that uh, and again, this is just where, where Calvinists get, get this, I don't know. Um, the covenant of works. And so God decides that Adam has this probationary period that if he'll, if he'll do what is right, then his righteousness will be imputed to his progeny. Mm. Uh, but if he does wrong, then his, then his um, sinfulness will be imputed to his, to his progeny. And that's the covenant of works. And my thing is, where's that in the Bible? Right. You know, where's that in Genesis one, two, and three? Yeah. It, it's, 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 um, post hoc rationalizations hmm. for an idea that, that they, that they want to, that they, that they want to find some sort of textual support for. Yeah. So, uh, uh, the reason I'm a sinner is because Adam sinned. Yeah. Uh, um, and so the reason I'm reprobate is because Adam sinned, that sin was imputed to me along with the rest of humanity uh, none of us are now capable of responding to, to God. And so God randomly picks this group of people and he flips the switch on their, on their desire so that now they do desire to be saved. And then on hearing the gospel, they can be saved. And then the way that they're saved is that they believe uh, in, the, in, the, in the person and work of Christ for them. And that's, that's necessary for them to be saved. Which, yeah. which it is necessary. Uh, uh, we have to have a sacrifice for our sins. Um, but what the mechanism for our salvation is election. Uh, faith is the gift. Is in, in the Calvinistic term, that's just a response that's given to us. Uh, it's not given to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's we've already been saved in a sense so that we can have faith. The regeneration precedes faith from that, from that point. Right. Of view. In fact, in fact uh, more hardline or hyper-Calvinists have a view, I think it's called eternal justification. And they'll go ahead and admit that, that, that one's justification is a, uh, is sealed and settled in eternity past. Yeah. And, and they don't mind saying it. Now you're uh, probably your friend and what I would call more mainline Calvinists. They, they don't like eternal justification because they, that what they want to say is, no, there is this moment when a lost person hears the gospel and they respond in faith and they get saved. And, and, and quote, unquote, that's how someone gets saved. But my question is, could it have been otherwise? Yeah. Could, it have, could, it, could their salvation have been otherwise? Could they have been sitting in that same set of circumstances, heard the gospel and said no to the gospel? Mm. And the Calvinist answer is no, they couldn't. Because they are irresistibly drawn so that they cannot do otherwise. And uh, uh, the desire that they didn't have for God, now they do have a desire for God. That desire is given to them by God. Yeah. And, and it's a desire that's not given to other people. Yeah. And so the mechanism that results in someone's salvation is God's choice of them. Mm. God's determination yeah. of their salvation. 
And I know they don't like that word determinism. Tough. Yeah. That, that is a philosophical word. It's called determinism. Yeah. Uh, and so they come up with compatibilism, which just means that determinism and freedom are compatible. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean sovereignty and freedom are compatible. Again, that's another misleading thing that Calvinists say is, oh, no, no, I'm not a determinist. I'm not compatibilist. I believe sovereignty and free will are compatible. I believe sovereignty and free will are compatible. I right. don't believe determinism and freedom are compatible, which is what compatibilism means. Yeah. It, another, another word for it is called soft determinism. Mm. It's, it's determinism. Yeah. Yeah. Man, thank you. Um, so the next, his next question comes from paragraph eight of, of um, your essay, your, your article. He says, um, there, oh, sorry, there you write, uh, so to restate the purpose of this essay, the problematic doctrine of reprobation is not a necessary theological implication of Romans 9. If Roman 9 disappears as an ironclad justification for retro, uh, reprobation, then the doctrine of doctrine uh, of Calvinism, sorry, then the doctrine of reprobation and Calvinism with it are in serious trouble. I'm sorry for reading that kind of sloppy. But my, my buddy writes to this, um, I'm afraid I don't understand this logic. Two people approach a difficult passage. If one can show that his interpretation is possible, then the other's is obviously wrong. So he's kind of questioning uh, what you're saying there. Your justification. Could you respond to that? I'm sorry. Yeah. First of all, uh, it's I don't really understand his objection. If I all when we're when we're doing interpretation or exegesis, uh, there are two. There can be two possible interpretations of a text. I mean, hence all of the denominations <laughs> that we have, right. uh, and there can be there can be more than one possible interpretation that is legitimate. And that leads to Baptists and Methodists and, you know, Calvinists and non-Calvinists. And so just because one, I, just because a legitimate case can be made for one interpretation that's different than a, than a case that can be made for another interpretation doesn't mean a possible interpretation rules out all, all the other interpretations. In fact, he's actually trying, he's making the point that I'm making about how Calvinists treat Romans 9, which is, this is the only way it can be understood. Mm. Reprobation is the only conclusion that you can draw yeah. from Romans 9. And in fact, even though Rome, and, and here's what, here's what even uh, uh, Grudem, and, and this, this is typical of Calvinists, we don't want to affirm reprobation. It sounds bad. It's a horrible decree. Uh, you know, it's just, oh, we, you know, we're so sad. We're, we're, a God in sorrow reprobates, you know, yeah. uh, uh, some people, but, but Romans nine, you know, there's yeah. just no way around Romans nine. It just, it just teaches reprobation. And so my argument uh, is this, uh, you shouldn't want to believe reprobation. Uh, it, there's nothing about scriptural revelation that would lead you to believe that, that God is a God who chooses some and not others just because that's what he wants to do. Yeah. Not that that's, you read the Bible. You, that's not the story you get. You get John three sixteen. He loves the whole world. He wants all people to be saved. Sure. Multitudes coming to him around his throne. First that's, John that's what two, God, 
Not just our sins, sins of the whole world. The whole world, yeah. which is why your sins are four-point Calvinist, by the way. Yeah. Um, um, so no one should want the doctrine of reprobation to be true. It's It calls God's justice into question, uh, on and on and on. And so my point is, um, since you shouldn't want, even the Calvinists don't appear to want reprobation to be true. They just say, but because of Romans 9, I just... There's, there's no way around it. So my argument in the essay is this. If I can prove that there is another faithful interpretation of Romans 9 that doesn't demand reprobation, that's the one you ought to go with. Yeah. Because further, Calvinists, again, their, their argument is that Romans 9 demands a reprobation interpretation. Yeah. Well, what if I can show that Romans 9 does not demand it? Yeah. Then you should opt out of reprobation. Because it's a it's a kind of a terrible thing to say about God. Yeah, and it works. I, that's really good. I mean, like we all come to the text with different presuppositions or lenses that we're seeing it through. We can't help it. It's just natural, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to um, to take those off, or even know sometimes that you have them. Sometimes we don't even realize it. Um, and I, I apologize. I didn't put this in the show notes. But is there any advice you could give to someone to like? Give them some strategies if, if they're really versed in the in the word to be able to take those presuppositions off. There's any any steps we could take to try to divorce ourselves from our preconceived feelings of of what we've been taught the text says, so that we can read it. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would I would actually tell you to sort of do the opposite of what you're laying out. You 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 can't get rid of your presuppositions. Okay, that's just we we see we have lenses through which we see the text. Yeah. Did you the opposite? You get real clear on what the presuppositions are. Are my presuppositions good? Are they are they the pre, are they presuppositions that are faithful to the large themes of Scripture? Mm. Uh, are they um, internally consistent? So I don't have one presupposition that contradicts another presupposition. Yeah. Um, um, am I willing to let the text correct me? If I've got an idea, man, I think that really is the best way to understand who God is and how he works. But then I'll run into a text that that just won't, I can't shoehorn it into my presupposition. Then my presupposition has to go. Mm. Not that I don't, I don't just continue to pull on the text right. and beat it until it gets into the shape that I want it to get. And so that really is what I'm asking a Calvinist to do. And that's why I was trying to lay out our Hey, Calvinist, are you sure you got Paul's argument? Because mm. what Calvinists will do, and this is the this is the criticism I think it's of Taylor in, in my in the essay, is Taylor says, when you've decided that Augustine is correct, and when you've decided that you're gonna you're gonna do your theologizing from Romans by taking tiny bits of scripture from here and there and here, and then we'll put it together with this one, but you really sort of ignore the flow of Paul's argument, then you can kind of get Romans to say almost anything that you want it to say. Yeah. And so what I was with my Calvinist friends are, are you letting Paul say what he wants to say and then let the chips fall where they may? Yeah. So that's what I would in, in, encourage people to do. And that there's a ton of humility that says you were subject to getting it wrong. Uh, oh, and then the final thing that I would say is uh, there are, this is back to your uh your focus on Nicene Christianity. Yeah. Now, the church has decided that there's some non-negotiables. Right. Okay. You don't get to go through scripture and say, oh, Trinity, uh, you know, maybe not. 
Right. That's clear. Um, I wonder if there's more than, I wonder if there's salvation outside of Christ. No. See, we have this verse that says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Yeah. That's, there's, there's really not multiple possible, possible uh, interpretations of that verse. Right. And so, um, so there is also the role that faithful people of old who've been interpreting across the centuries, we do, we do have to do business with them. Yeah. And when they agree across the centuries that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, one, one person, I mean, one essence, three persons, we've decided that's a, that doesn't have multiple interpretations. Yeah. And I, I could list you the rest of Nicene Christianity sure. uh, that, that lays that out. Yeah, and even Augustine himself believed in like free will the way we're talking about free will and God's sovereignty until 411, 412 when he starts writing City of God and then everything changes. Correct. Everything gets weird. Mm -hmm. um, you were talking about uh, John Taylor earlier. Uh, you cite John Taylor's exegesis of Romans 9 and you write, Taylor's conclusions are, one, unbelieving Jews are the focus of Romans 9. Two, the fate of these Jews is salvation by faith a fact that restores credibility to Paul's claim that his gospel is powerful enough to save both Gentiles and Jews. Three, God is free to save these Jews by faith and therefore is not unjust to reject them if their hope remains in, quote, uh, works of the law, unquote. And four, the Jewish hope of salvation is based completely on God's mercy. And to this, my buddy responded, he, uh, I don't have any large disagreement with this summary. My issue lies more with uh, what appears to be general statements applicable to more than unbelieving Jews, i.e. Romans 9, 14 uh, through 26, and particular, uh, particularly uh, 9, 22 through 24, which says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make, this is from the NAS, did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he cites um, John Murray's commentary on Romans. So uh, basically, you know, he's saying, couldn't this just, couldn't this apply to Gentiles too? You know, so how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, um, The argument that I'm making is that it doesn't it, that, that in Romans nine through eleven, Paul isn't talking about how God deals with all people at all for all time. My my point is, I'm not making the argument that I think God deals with Jews differently than Gentiles. I'm making the argument that that's Paul's argument, yeah. and so. Um, uh, First of all, uh, Murray's, is it Murray's commentary? Yeah. Murray's reformed. Yeah. You know, and I'll tell you, because I'm familiar with that commentary, that um, Murray's argumentation is like, yes, this is about Jews only, and Paul's making an argument about unbelieving Jews here. But this also can be applied, to, you know, in a reformed way. Basically, is what he does throughout throughout his exegesis of that part of the of the uh, uh part of the book of Romans. Mm. So I, 
I've, I've always been kind of stumped by Murray's approach because it's like, yeah, we know Paul looks like he's talking about, or his argument is about unbelieving Jews, but let's go ahead and make sure that we apply this to all people for all time. But he doesn't give a exegetical justification for that. Yeah. He gives a theological justification for that. Since Reformed theology tells us this is how this text has to work, then this is obviously what it means. Well, that's a circle. So uh, what, what I would say is let's let Paul uh, make the argument that Paul wants to make. Uh, and Paul is making an argument that God is dealing with unbelieving Jews in the present. He's hardening them in the present for salvation historical purposes. And when those salvation historical purposes are complete and the purpose is that the Gentiles would come in then he'll remove that partial hardening and all Israel will be saved. That's the whole argument from, from Romans nine to 11. Yeah. And then of course, what's, what's at the center of that argument, Romans 10 is that it's by faith. That's how people get saved. Yeah. Jews and Gentiles. They have, they have to, they have to, uh, respond in faith to the gospel that's preached to them, which by the way, and this is off topic a little bit, you know, it's so funny. No one wants to read Romans nine and no one wants to read Romans 11, but we love Romans 10. Uh, that's <laughs> another thing I want to encourage people about Romans is, is if, if your approach to Romans is you love Romans one, you love Romans three, mm. you love Romans five through eight, yep. you love Romans 10 and you love Romans 12. Right. <laughs> then you're not reading Romans the right way. Yeah. Uh, because that's not how the Romans read Romans. Yeah. It, it's a continual argument all the way through. How many sermons have you heard from Romans 2? I can tell you how many. Zero. How many have you heard from Romans 9? Zero. Except by Calvinist, making Calvinistic arguments for it. Yeah. So, um, so, oh, but one of the things I want you to know, I believe that when, when Paul says, how can they know unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? That Paul is talking about preaching to Jews. Right. Now, and here, so here's my point. It's not that you can't take those verses and apply them universally. Sure. All of us need to be sharing the gospel with anybody who's lost. If we don't, they won't hear. But we don't need to miss Paul's specific purpose. The Roman Gentile Christians are kind of losing interest in presenting the gospel to Jewish Christians. And so yeah. Paul says, no, 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 no. They won't get saved if you don't preach the gospel because they have to come by faith. Yeah. And whosoever will may come. So we're not going to give up on preaching the, the gospel to the Jews uh, because they, they won't get saved. And how, how will they know unless they hear? How will they hear uh, unless someone uh, uh, is sent? Yeah. And Paul's saying, I want that to be me. Yeah. How will the Jews in Spain hear the gospel? Uh, someone needs to go and preach the gospel to them. And even though those Jews in the synagogues in Spain reject the gospel and cause problems, their rejection of the gospel, will, Paul says, will drive me mm. the Gentiles I'm supposed to preach to. Yeah. And then at the right time, even, even those gospel rejecting Jews in Spain will be, will be made jealous and, and will come at the, at the right time. Yeah. yeah that's really good. It's, it's, that's a really good point too about um, like how a text could be a, a certain portion of a letter could be focused toward a, a, a individual, individual group. Like that's the main you know, audience that he's writing it to in that particular section, but it could be applicable to others. Kind of like uh, in Romans one about, you know, the people who receive God's wrath are those who exchange the the truth of God for a lie, worship the creator instead of the creator, or they worship the creation instead of the creator. It's like Irenaeus, um, I believe it's Irenaeus, 
uses that point to talk about the Jewish leaders talking uh, when they said at Jesus's trial before Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. He said they were exchanging the truth of God, God for a lie. So like Romans 1 could be applicable to the Jews. And Paul says, you know, y'all do the same things, talking to Jews in, in Romans 2, but it's primarily addressed to, to Gentiles. And that's, that's correct. Yeah. And, and that, that makes me think in, in making sure we're following, uh, uh, we can make all, all kinds of scriptural applications, but we need to make sure we're following the argument. Here's the other thing. Yeah. And I, and, I'm, and I lay this out in a, in a lengthy way in the essay for folks who want to read the essay. An, another thing is what Paul says about the unbelieving Jews in Romans 9. He has harsh things to say about them in Romans 9. They are unbelieving. They are vessels of wrath. They are Esau Jews. They're yeah. Ishmael Jews. These are the same people he's talking about in Romans 11. Yeah. They're beloved. They are going to be grafted back in. They're gonna. Uh, they're gonna. Uh, they're they're un- underneath this saving purpose of God. The uh, the hardening is going to be removed. He's talking about the same people, yeah. and so you can't make the case in Romans nine that Paul is talking about a group of people who will never be saved. If fifty verses later he's saying they will be saved. Yeah. So that that again that 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 busting the text up. So that you only focus on the parts that, that fit your argument is that's bad exegesis, and that misses Paul's that misses Paul's point. Yeah, Paul seems to not really believe um, in retro reprobation, uh, like Romans Again, ten if, one. If he's talking about reprobated Jews in Romans nine, why does he why does he pray for their salvation in Romans ten? The first few verses of Romans ten. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's that's what I was going to. That's good, man. Um, all right, so question seven. Uh, so like hitting, hitting on a similar theme as the previous question, you write in the fifth paragraph of your essay, the problem is explicitly set forth in Romans 3, 5. Is God unrighteous in inflicting wrath upon Jews rather than saving them? And my buddy rep- responds to that. Uh, why does this verse apply to Jews only? We're kind of coming back to a similar theme, but... Um, he then quotes James Dunn's commentary on Romans. My buddy does, uh, quote, in speaking of our unrighteousness, he speaks as every man or more precisely as a Jew who now sees the universal implications of what uh, had hi- uh, hitherto been exclusively Jewish insight. So there you go. I, I, uh, I have Dunn's commentary. And I should have looked it up. I, I think it's just... Your friend would agree with nothing that James Dunn thinks about thinks about Romans or Paul. Okay, mm-hmm. James Dunn is one of the fathers of the new perspective on Paul. Yeah, so I don't know why your friend is quoting Dunn. That's like with E. P. Sanders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, E. P. and uh, N. T. Wright. Okay, uh, you know, and it has all kinds of arms and legs and directions to it. I have a great appreciation for Wright, for instance. Yeah, but Dunn, I, I have a lot of, and and Sanders even more. I would quibble with quibble with them. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, is that Dunn would, he's, he is not loved by reformed people uh, uh, at all. And I'm not sure what Dunn, why Dunn is making the point that he's making, because it's obvious if you read that text, Paul is really a, he's speaking about Jews. Yeah. I, I don't, it seems clear, even if you want to say once again, now we can make some, you know, 
some unit like if you want to make the universal assumption uh, and or uh, the uh, being reminded that no one is saved by works yes right sure um ephesians <laughs> 2 helps us with that you know yeah. um but the question is what what is the argument that Paul is making. And Paul is making an argument about God's justice with respect to Jewish resistance. Uh, is God being fair? That's, that's, that's Paul's answer. How can we understand the justice of God when Jews find themselves underneath wrath? Yeah. So, um, and uh, that, uh, I, and I don't have the verses memorized, but that is, for, for 10 or 15 verses, that's a part of Paul's a specific Jew argument that Paul is making about Jewish unbelief. Yeah. yeah. So we're getting into like potter and clay stuff now. Uh, so concerning Romans 9, 20 through 21, where Paul uses the potter analogy, you wrote uh, in your essay, Paul draws the imagery of vessels from Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. I agree with that, by the way. Uh, Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house where he observes a potter crump, uh, crumpling an unwilling clay pot he has not yet fired and starting over. My buddy responds, of the occurrences of a potter clay metaphor in the Old Testament, I don't think this is a parallel to Romans 9.21, the Jeremiah passage. In Jeremiah 18, a single lump is reformed. In Romans 9, two vessels emerge from a single lump. Further, in the context of uh, Romans 9.21, the question is not the sovereignty of God per se, but rather his rights, mercy and hardening over sinners, as he talks about in uh, 9.14. To me, a closer but still not identical analogy to Romans 9 would be Isaiah 64.7-9, particularly given the context provided by Isaiah 64.7. So how, how would you respond to that? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I can give all kinds of support for Jeremiah 18 being functioning, and and the I, I think Paul is marrying the Isaiah text as well. Yeah, so I think the Isaiah text is maybe the maybe the pot is saying something like, "Why did you make me like this?" or or does the does the potter not have authority over the clay? Something like that. Here's the deal: I believe God has authority over the clay. He's he's the potter. We're the clay. He makes he makes us of us what he will. The question is, what does God want to make? And so, in the Jeremiah eighteen text, and I think this is this is where it's re, uh, relevant. God says, "If I want to make a pot uh, uh, for for salvation, or uh, but that pot doesn't want to be." Uh, a pot of salvation, I'll just crumple it and I'll make it into a vessel of wrath. Mm. And if I'm making, then he says, if I'm making a, a pot for destruction and it and it wants to be a a, a, a vessel of, of mercy, then I'll crumple it and make it into a, a vessel of mercy. But the point is the same. It it depends on the, the response. Mm. And, it, and Paul will go on to define that response as a response of faith. So God is in control uh, God is sovereign over salvation uh, and, and who gets saved. The question is, who does God want to save? The, the 
Calvinist says the one who God wants to save is those he, he foreordains to save, regardless of their choice of faith. What the New Testament appears to me to teach is God has decided I'll save people by faith. I will, I will save people who respond in faith uh, to the gospel. And, and when they do, I save them and I'm going to save. And that's the only basis on which I'm going to save people. Yeah. I'm not going to save them because they're ethnicity. I'm not going to save them because they followed a bunch of rules uh, that, that somebody said they ought to follow. I've decided, and it doesn't matter if they're Jews, it doesn't matter if they're Gentiles, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if they've, they've been wicked. Uh, it doesn't matter if their life has been full of, of, of every wrong choice. The moment they put their faith in Christ, uh, I'm going to save them. And they could be the most wonderful people in the world who have very clean, beautiful lives, very moral, upstanding, right? Um, going to church, yeah. uh, right, right family, the right last name, the right pedigree and the right heritage. But if they do not put their faith in my son, I'm not going to save them. And that really is the question of God's judge of justice. Mm. God, you, you have this special people, the Jews, and they have your Torah and man, they are following rules like gangbusters and they're, they're getting persecuted by other people because they're viewed uh, as, as being weird. And man, they are really, they're doing a lot of good stuff. Yeah. And they're related to Abraham. Why aren't you saving them? I mean, you're, you're supposed to save those people. Mm. And God says, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not how I save. Yeah. I save them by faith. That makes me think of two passages. It makes me think of oh, 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 one book and one passage. It makes me think of the book of Jonah, where you've got these people that he's going to damn, you know, the Ninevites, but they choose to put faith in God, so he saves them. And then Jonah, this prophet that he's chosen to be a prophet, is left. We're left at the end of the book think, well, is he going to put faith in Yahweh or is he going to turn away? And it seems very, very similar to Luke 15 with the two sons. The one who's like a vessel of damnation who chooses by faith to come back. And then you got the good son, done everything right his whole life, but then he's left outside rejecting the father. And is he going to choose the father or not? I don't know. Maybe I'm way off course on that. But. I, I, this, the thought that came to my mind as you were saying that, I think if, if we had said to Paul, hey, we're going to give you an extra sheet of parchment paper, uh, would you write two or three more paragraphs on the, that whole Romans 9 thing, I think he would have said, let, let's see. Oh, also Jonah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Jesus told this story one time about two sons. I mean, yeah, that is a, a deep fundamental idea of the message yeah. is, is um, the people you who you think are in yeah. are out. Right. And the people you think are out are in. Mm -hmm. And the one difference difference maker is what? Yeah, Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Faith yeah. in Jesus. That's it. Yeah. When you come, doesn't matter what you look like when you come. And and the story of the gospels is the story of Pharisaical rejection hmm. and acceptance of sinners, Gentiles, and outcasts, and prostitutes and and the, the ones you think are in are out. The ones you think are out are in. And that's been the long, hard story of Israel from the get-go. And so one of the other things that Paul is also saying is from the beginning, mm. the Jews have sort of 
have, have given this kind of tough example to the world of how God does not save. Yeah. Mm. It's good stuff, man. I'm like starting to get kind of emotional. I mean, you start talking about what Jesus does for us and those you think are out or in, those you think you're in or out. I mean, it's, uh, it's good stuff. Um, so t- two last questions. Um, in, in footnote 12, you cite William Lane Craig, who you were talking about earlier with uh, Molinism, and you write, Craig argues that against, that against the determinism, determinism on which rep, reprobation is based, five objections can be raised. One, it cannot offer a coherent interpretation of Scripture. Two, it cannot ration, be rationally affirmed. Three, it makes God the author of sin and denies human responsibility. I'm not going to go through all five, but um, I'm do three. Uh, third, uh, it makes God the author of sin and denies human responsibility. And then my my, uh, my buddy writes, um, and he quotes the Craig's point about it makes God the author of sin and denies human responsibility. And my buddy writes, um, this appears to be a key a key sticking point, right? Like determinism. Um, is God the author of evil? Yeah, it is the sticking point. <laughs> uh, and he says, I have the impression that William Lane Craig and perhaps Dr. Hankins are taking the starting point that Origen takes, that we are blameless, innocent victims of God's caprice. Should we not couch the an- analysis in light of Romans 3, 9 through 18 and similar passages? Yeah, this is this is just what starts to happen in these discussions between Calvinists and non-Calvinists is uh, they your friend does not believe that God is the is the cause of evil. Yeah. His confession, the Westminster Confession, will not allow him to believe that. And I believe he uh, he says I I believe he believes that God is not the cause of evil. The problem is his belief system demands that. Yeah. And I've, ha- I've had this same discussion um, just over and over and over with Calvinists because it makes them mad when you, when you say the only conclusion to draw about your system is that God is the author of evil. And they, they do not like that. And they ought not to like it because it's heresy. Right. But the only way they can say that God is the cause of all things but he's not the cause of evil is to be incoherent. Mm. If God determines everything, then he determines the damnation of some. Yeah. And the majority, right? Correct. Yeah. If some humans sin, it's because God caused them to sin because God causes everything. And so they come up with all of these. These are secondary causes, and God has an asymmetrical relationship between election and reprobation. And it, but it's just smoke and mirrors. I'm just telling you, it's just it, they're trying to get around this conclusion. And so when someone like me or William Lane Craig says it, 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 it makes God the author of evil, it makes Calvinists mad, and so then they start accusing us of being heretics. And so that's when you get origin and you get semi-Pelagian and that kind of thing, because we're just starting to talk ugly to each other. Right. And I don't intend to, to, in saying that, and I was, I was actually quoting William Lane Craig because he's a very well-known, very right. well-respected, kind theologian. So I wasn't trying to be mean, 
But what I'm affirming is what gets affirmed about the weaknesses of Calvinism over and over and over again is there's no way around logically the logical implications of the system. And so either God is the cause of evil or logical, uh, God can be accused of being logically inconsistent and God can't be logically inconsistent or reality collapses because that means um, I can depend on gravity to work today, but it may not work tomorrow. Yeah. Because sometimes uh, there's a fundamental incoherence to reality. Yeah. That won't work. God can't make a square circle. And it doesn't, that doesn't have anything to do with God's lack of power. Jesus he, can't be the way and many ways at the same time. Correct. Yeah. There you go. And so sometimes what Calvinists will do is they say, well, it's a mystery as to how God causes all things if he doesn't, he's not the author of evil. That's to misuse the word mystery. It's a mystery as to how God is one essence and three persons. What we're not saying is God is one person and three persons. Yeah. That's not a mystery. That's a logical inconsistency. Um, uh, what the Calvinist says is God causes something and he doesn't cause it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's not going to work. And so unfortunately you, uh, uh, because the Westminster confession is so old. And so the Westminster confession, it just makes this. And I guess because it says it in old English, it makes it sound more true. <laughs> uh, God is the author of all things that come to pass. So as not to be charged with being the author of evil. Yeah. Oh, well, since some guys with Puritan hats said it in 1600, it must be true. Yeah, I'm sorry. You, you, you there's this real big philosophical problem there. I've never heard a good answer to it from a Calvinist. They always punt to mystery, mm. or they're hyper Calvinists who say, "Yep, God causes evil." <laughs> you know, and you so yeah, I think it's R.C. Sproul's son. You know, some of those guys, they're just like, "Yep." Um, God's the author of evil. Yeah. And that brings him more glory. Uh, their logic is God uh, is going to do everything for his own glory. Uh, so, uh, one thing that glorifies God well is punishing sinners. So he needed to create some sinners so he could punish them so he could get the glory from it. Yeah. It's certainly just logically consistent. It's just unbiblical and it's not a God anybody. I, <laughs> I would want to believe in that God. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 approach to sovereignty and and even like the compatibilistic approach to sovereignty really gives me some strong strong feelings toward it uh you know of displeasure because like I think about the people who like in Matthew 7 who really believed they were they were followers of Jesus and they were lawless but they believed that they were saved but they didn't know him in a sense, or people like in, in Matthew 25, and one way to look at the goats is they're calling them him Lord too. So they thought he was Lord, but they weren't saved either. And it just, the worst, the worst thing I can think of is someone being programmed in a sense. And I, I know that's not a word that is appreciated by uh, reformed people, but someone being given the desires or, or being determined or sovereignly willed to think they were saved only to find out when they were dead that they weren't. Like to me, that's, that is, that's evil. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it, has a, it has a distressing implication 
uh, that, that bears out in, in some practical ways. Um, many of the Calvinist divines of the of the uh, 16 and 1700s struggled over assurance of salvation. Right. They, they didn't. They 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 couldn't testify to a certainty that they belong to the Lord because their salvation isn't based on any even or that their response of faith could right. be false. Right. Uh, because God, they may not. They just may not be among the elect. So they have they have false belief. Yeah. That was they were determined to have false belief. Right. So. So this promise of great assurance, and you'll hear that from Calvinists. I just have this assurance because it's all of God and none of me. Not if they're being intellectually consistent. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, last question. You're a pastor. And so I know you deal with like where the rubber meets the road type scenarios a lot. Like this is not just an intellectual thing. This is real people with real emotions going on, real intellectual challenges, um, sometimes, you know, mental illness that's bringing to places, addiction, and this is just tough stuff. Like, I think, are you familiar with, like, Derek Webb? That he was a, he was a part of uh, Cademan's call, and so, like, he was a, he was a strong Calvinist, and he cheated on his wife, and um, he's basically taken the opinion, either I was predestined before time to cheat on my wife and be a Judas type character or God doesn't exist and it's all, you know, just a myth and a fairy tale. And so he's chosen the myth and the fairy tale over them believing, you know, or you have like John Piper's kid, Abraham. That's he's, but it seems like he's rejecting a a straw man. You know, you're not rejecting the real thing. You're rejecting something we should reject. That's not God, you know? So as a pastor who's probably seen people wrestle with the implications of Calvinism and perhaps known people who have considered renouncing faith in Jesus because of an abhorrence to the God set forth by Calvinism, do you have any words of exhortation or advice for anyone listening to this program? Yeah, I think one, a couple of things come to mind. One is as I've, as I've run into Calvinists in churches where I pastored and, and I've had some, it's, it's been pretty infrequent, but somebody be, you know, a little uh, aggressive. Yeah. I find that um, if I can get them to tell me their story, mm. there are some things that are understandable about what's attractive about Calvinism to them. Sure. Very often, there's, the, the story tends to be the same. I was saved and then no one discipled me. Mm. I was saved and no one challenged me to look at theology, to learn words like justification. And so there's all this amazing uh, stuff about the Christian faith. Mm. Uh, and But I was ignorant and I smacked my head on a lot of sin and foolishness and immaturity. And then in college, someone introduced me to John Piper. Someone introduced me to Wayne Green. They gave me these big, thick books, the glory of God and the, you know, he's serious about sin and Jesus is the only way. And, mm, mm. and it was meaty and robust and, and, mm. and unashamed that they're almost mad mm. that that got withheld from them. Mm. And it's not that as though they don't have a point. I think some of this is a failure of so often a failure of discipleship in 
traditions that are that are very warm-hearted in their evangelism because we believe anyone can be saved so we just preach the gospel and come to christ today and you you know you you decide and all that which is what we believe and then man dunk you in the water good luck and we're on to the next the next lost person and so there's been a weakness in discipleship and so mm. i think tends to be the case with Calvinists is, man, they're serious about study and theology and doctrine and reading and thick books and knowing stuff. But very quickly, uh, you know, Paul talks about knowledge that puffs up. I mean, mm. it, that's where it goes. And so, um, so one of the things I would say is, is uh, be sympathetic mm. to they, they have uh, Calvinists have a reason, you know, they, they, they're, they're very often, uh, they're not very often. They're always people of goodwill. Mm. They, they they love Jesus. Uh, that they, they want to be faithful uh, to, to who God is, and they they, they want to have a big God. Yeah. Um. And um. I think that's always just a good thing to remember because I tend to be a, a, a little bit of pugnacious. You know, I, I want to start. <laughs> I want to start. Me too. Yanking off Kathy. <laughs> um. But. And then here's the other thing I would say positively. Let's go to the text. Mm. Let's go to the text. Why don't we just both agree, as you said at the beginning, we're going to try our best to pull aside any preconceived notions. We're going to test. We're going to all be willing mm. to kind of not try to impose any preconceived uh, strictures on the text. And let's just see what the let's see what the text says. And no, 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 we're not going to do um, scripture spell casting here and then one here and then I'm going to throw my scripture spell at you and you'll throw your verse back, back at me. <laughs> We're going to do contextual, serious, uh, good quality exegesis in which we're taking the, the full meaning of a Bible author's argumentation so that we're making sure we're letting John say what he wants to say and Jesus say what, what he wants to say. Um, to the um, and then I, I, I would ask a Calvinist to what I would call is steel man my argument. Because mm. I think there's a lot of straw manning. Mm. Well, it's like your friend's comment about origin. I guess you're just like origin that believes that we are just, I can't remember the exact quote, but we're just uh, innocent victims of God's caprice. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think I think that we're innocent victims of God's caprice? Do you, do you think I think that? Right. right. I hear what you're saying. No. Right. I don't think that. Yeah. But you take the kind of the worst version. I mean, origin's a heretic, yeah. you know? And you you take something I said that isn't what you said, and then you marry it to what origin says, and then you accuse me of what origin believes that I don't believe. It's, you know, that's not productive. Yeah. That's not productive. And when I said, and William Lane Craig says, it, it, it affirms that God is the cause of evil. I'm not saying that your friend believes that God is the cause of evil. I am saying that's a logical uh, yeah. uh, implication. Yeah. And we can have a discussion about whether or not my view leads logically to semi-Pelagianism. But that kind of argument needs to be a generous, scholarly, calm, you know, you need to let people make that. So I would also say to the, uh, to the Calvinist, Repeat back to me what you think I believe, and let me repeat back to you what I think you believe. That's like so good marriage counseling, too. 
It sure it is. Sure it is. It's just good, good relationship stuff. So that it's yeah. not too. It's not true scarecrows. Yeah, yelling at each other. Right. It's two people who have at least taken the time to make sure we understand each other and, and what and, and what the other person is trying to affirm. And then what we know, and 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 I appreciate your commitment to Nicene Christianity, which leads to always remember that in essentials unity, yeah, in, in disputable matters charity, uh, in disputable yeah. matters liberty, yeah. and in all things charity. Yeah, and so. With people who can't be nice, at some point you got to say, "Look, we—I'm not interested in just standing in a in a circle whacking each other in the head. This is not productive. Mm. Can can we be kind yeah. uh, to each other while we have these discussions? Or are we going to start insulting each other and throwing rocks and creating problems and that kind of thing? That's not pleasing to the Lord. And then to the person who's been confused mm. by Calvinism and it's shaken their faith. And I've had a lot of people approach me about that. Yeah. Is uh is with confidence. And it needs to be it needs to be a um a, a confidence that's filled with integrity. Mm. But I look at that person and I say, here's what the Bible teaches. God loves everybody. Mm. God wants everybody to be saved. Uh God uh, has one way of salvation, that's through faith in Christ alone. And so there will be lots of people who never hear. There'll be lots of people who hear and do not believe. And it's heartbreaking to God, most of all. So sin is serious. Hell is real. Time is running short. Everybody is not going to get saved. Yeah, That's what the Bible teaches, but anyone can be saved. Anyone from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low, including you. And all you have to do to be saved is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you confess with your, Romans 10, mm-hmm. if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You, you will be saved. Mm-hmm. And that's how you know you're saved. When you ask me, how do I know I'm saved? Well, my dad, when I was nine years old, laid the gospel out for me. And in faith, I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've had some bad days since then. Mm-hmm. I've stumbled and fall. I've embarrassed Jesus. I have run cold, but God made a promise. It's why Adrian Rogers, great old preacher, mm-hmm. Adrian Rogers, yep. preferred um, uh, instead of perseverance of the saints, he talked about security of the believer. That's a better way to talk about that, the security of the believer. My believing in Jesus is the is the basis of my assurance. Mm. Perseverance of the saints is I believe God elected me. Yeah. Unless my belief in my election is really a <laughs> right, right. I can have assurance in my salvation because because the Bible says when someone puts their trust in Jesus Christ, yeah. uh, they'll be saved. Well, what about people that fall away? Well, let's have that discussion on New Testament terms as well. That's a, that's a that's a uh, it's a germane mm-hmm. but somewhat different discussion. What the Bible says is. When you trust Christ by faith, you have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. You have his filling uh, that, that enables your ability to follow and obey, bear fruits of the Spirit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit. My point is this. When someone, like like the guy from Cademan's call, yeah. is you can say, 
it appears that the is is that you put your trust in in a, some other god than the god of the bible mm. and that that god will always disappoint mm. and so let's let's go ahead and return to what to what the bible uh, affirms yeah. uh, which is that god does not meticulously foreordain adultery yeah i'm just certain that's not what the bible teaches yep I meticulously foreordains adultery so that it could not be otherwise. I don't. I don't believe in that God either. I'm an atheist when it comes to that God. Right. Yeah, that's good. I mean, he's not going to like, to a lesser degree, not want you to commit adultery, but to a greater degree, his his real will is that you do. That doesn't make any sense. It just. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And and again, part of me maybe wishes it does work because it's it has its own it has its own internal consistency. Right. Right. It's a brutal, it's the, this, and I'll probably get beat up if people listen to this. Um, uh, uh, some pro-choice people uh, make the argument that uh, since it's okay to kill the preborn because they're undeveloped or, or don't meet some technical definition of consciousness, mm. that it's that by logic, you ought to be able to kill a six-month-old. Like the Romans did. Okay. That may be logically consistent, but it's horrible. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, it's sociopathic, all yeah. right? So sociopaths can be consistent. They kill everyone they see. Yeah. But it's not good. Right. And so it's the same thing. You may be able to, lie, to to consistently say that God foreordains the molestation of little children right? Uh, because he foreordains everything, but it's a horrible thing to think about God. Yeah. <laughs> it's a horrible thing to think about God. Yeah. And, and it certainly rejects uh, the ultimate uh, beauty of, of scripture and the, and, the, and the greater logic of the entire story of God. Wow. That's good. Thank you so much, Dr. Hankins, for taking your time and, and answering questions that I didn't send you in advance. I mean, but it's just really good, man. You got me thinking a lot. So I really appreciate you. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. And I appreciate the, the opportunity to, to, to share. And I like to talk about theology. So uh, <laughs> this has been fun for me. I've been a coward. Oh